Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to the Ogasho Galio Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week we are covering the purportedly super special Excalibur era parent in which Nightcrawler goes to the mall, Megan befriends a cyborg, Rachel builds a prison of glass, Brian almost destroys the universe, and Kitty sucks at math? Era parent <laughs> was originally published in December 1991. It was written by Scott Lobdell and features the pencils of Ron Lim, Brian Stelfreeze, Dwayne Turner, Jackson Guy. Rick Leonardi, Eric Larson, and James Fry. Inks by Al Gordon, Carl Story, Klaus Johnson, Tom Palmer, Joseph Rubenstein, and Don Hudson. Colors by Glynis Oliver, Dana Morshead, and Adrian Lenschuk. Letters by Michael Heisler and Steve Dutro. And editing by Terry Cavanaugh and Mark Powers. So how long have you been drawing comic books? Since I was about seven years old, little kid. What did your parents think about it? They hated it. They hated it. Oh, yeah. After I, I got a job and they saw that you can make a living out of third day, you'll hear no complaints anymore. And you created X-Force? Mm -hmm. So what is this drawing on? This is the Spike Man. And what's this right here? This is the camera on top of your head that will record the wrongdoings of others. So Rob, have you had any formal art training? No. Just uh, a lot of imagination, I think. Wait, so, so I say it and then look down? Or just open it and say it? Fly button? Well, you voted, and we are legally bound by Twitter polls, so here we are, covering Excalibur Air Apparent. I hope we survive the experience. I am Dr. Anna Papard. I write and talk about gender and sexuality and comics and pop culture and books and journals and around the interwebs. I am also Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager, and in that capacity, I am here to give a hearty shout-out to the Glasgow fans who gave my guy such a warm welcome at the Galleria Mall back in 1991. Any day a public appearance doesn't end with a mob trying to kill Nightcrawler is a good day for us so thank you for that i am joined as always by my heir parents starting with mav take it away no <laughs> Make me... this one why, 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 why i i mean i don't want to be mean to our fans i mean thank you for listening but why why would you do this? i thought you liked us why would you do this to us <laughs> um, i mean I, i'm such a fan of walt simonson so if you wanted us to do like an hour just discussing the cover of this comic that Great would be cover. better i um i mean it's not walt's best work but it's a, it's solid <laughs> i like you know um um did you know his signature is a dinosaur we could talk about that for an hour that would be fun <laughs> um i am a fan of eric larson ron lim jackson guys mm. several of my favorite artists are in this book but why would you make us read it? Like, I mean, if you enjoy the show, why would you do this to us? I don't know. <laughs> 
um, beyond that, I'm Christopher Maverick. You can call me Mav. I have another show called Vox Popcast. I teach places and stuff. I don't, I'm, why? Why? Why would you do this to us, people? <laughs> it, it, I take responsibility. I should never have opened it up to that legally binding Twitter poll. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Andrew, please reintroduce your credentials to our rapt audience. Hello, I'm Dr. J. Andrew DeMann, a cosmic lecturer at St. Jerome's University <laughs> and cosmic project lead for the Claremont Run, a big, some might say cosmic, study of Chris Claremont's work on the cosmic uncanny X-Men and related cosmic spin-offs. I'm also someone who, instead of ridiculing Scott Lobdell for his hilarious use of the word cosmic as an empty adjective, has decided to go in the other direction and just completely buy into it. I feel cosmically great about this choice, if I'm being honest with you. <laughs> Thank you, Andrew. You found something you, you like. I, I like. I like that you found something to hang on to. Yeah. Our crew is joined this week by a very smart scholar who knows a thing or two about what makes pretty comics pages pretty. And we're so lucky to have him with us. The pod is euphoric to welcome Zachary Rondinelli. Welcome, Zach. Hi, everybody. Thanks for having me. I'll tell our listeners a little bit about you, Zach. So Zachary Rondinelli is a PhD student in educational studies at Brock University in St. Catharines, Ontario. I did a postdoc there, which is how we know each other. He is primarily interested in the intersection between comics, communication, and education, specifically as it relates to reading and literacy studies. Zach's research interests include comics theory, multimodality, literary studies, transactional theory, and more recently, digital comics and digital comics theory. Zach's writing on comics has been included in Pop, Comics and Culture, Panel by Panel, The Vault of Culture, and Sequential, Canadian Independent Digital Comics Magazine. He is also the creator of the Welcome to Slumberland Project, winner of the 2021 Gilbert Seldes Award for Public Scholarship. We are definitely going to talk a bit about that today. But what we like to do when we start the podcast with a new guest is to talk comics origin stories. So kick things off for us, Zach. When did you first get hooked on comics? Awesome. Yeah, so like many kids growing up in the 90s, um, I was obsessed with the animated adventures of superheroes. Um, I might get a little great for this because there'd been lots of earlier work done, but I think I was growing up in the absolute best era for comics-based animation um, with TV shows like <laughs> Batman, Batman Friends. Superman, <laughs> Justice League, yeah, yeah, Spider-Man and, and X-Men just proliferating my home TV screen. You might think that my interest in those spurred me to seek out their comic book counterparts, but if I'm being totally honest, I wouldn't have even really known how to get my hands on comics at that time, even if I'd wanted them. Like, I, I knew that they were comic book characters and that a lot of what I was watching was originating in comics, but I didn't know any comic book readers at the time, and they were just not in my world yet. That is, until I was about 12. So I'm going to paint a picture for you here. It's Halloween 2002. And I'm walking up to my neighbor's front door. I ring the doorbell. He opens it. I mutter the old trick-or-treat greeting. And I watch as he picks up this gargantuan stack of what I think are magazines and drops one into my candy bag. So, I mean, you can understand a kid, 12 years old, a little disappointed he didn't get candy, right? But it turns out it was actually an issue from a Spawn spinoff series called Spawn the Dark Ages. Um, oh my goodness. Yeah. And it's the 16th issue in the series. So I know this for sure because I recently looked it up for a chapter of my comps that I'm working on. And it was pretty easy to find because to this day, I can vividly remember the cover, which was this really awesome Ashley Wood reminiscent of his work on Hellspawn, which I think he'd been doing for quite some time at that point. But I remember flipping through the comic and thinking that it was super cool. It was so different and nothing like anything that I'd read before. So I carried it around with me for a while. I read it over and over again. I brought it to school and kept it in my desk. And then eventually I lost it and didn't think about comics for another six or seven years. 
<laughs> I, I really wish that I could say that that moment had kind of changed my life, but sadly it didn't. And, uh, uh, you know, at the time I was a really big prose reader. And even at a young age, I had a voracious reading appetite and would pretty much read any novel you put in front of me. I used to sit on the couch uh, and read with my mom, who was a really big reader. And I always wanted to read what she was reading so that we could talk about it. So I ended up reading a lot of James Patterson, Karen Slaughter, J.D. Robb, Tammy Hogue, those sorts of like thrillers and detective fictions, because that's what she was reading. And it was a really nice way for us to connect and kind of share something together. But ultimately, it was this like desire for connection through reading that led me back to comics. So for whatever reason, and please don't judge me because I was young and didn't know any better. Um, I really loved the Sin City film when it came out. And after watching it, I wanted like more of that. Yeah, <laughs> right. I do. I like that film now. I, You're good. Well done. The first one. Um, yeah, the first one, that's for sure. Um, I, I really wanted more. So I went out and I found the Frank Miller comics and I, I read those all pretty quickly. And from there, I decided that, as we all know, comics are super cool. Um, and I wanted to read more about some of the characters that I used to watch on TV in the days of yesteryear. So I read a lot of Batman comics because I know I'm basic, but he's always been my favorite. And uh, a buddy of mine saw that I was reading these books and he wanted to read too. So we kind of began our little, you know, informal kind of reading group where we read similar books to the same books then we talked about them. And even to this day, almost 15 years later, comics are a huge part of our friendship. And so at, at this point, I was still playing a lot of catch up. I was reading older stuff, stuff that we kind of recognize as foundational superhero stories today. And it wasn't until my brother started reading and collecting weekly comics that I got into you know, the more contemporary stories being told. And this was right around the time of the New 52. So I gobbled that stuff up. And, you know, it was sort of like uh, my first introduction to buying weekly comics at that point. But it became something that we could do together. And even though we were studying at different schools, it kept us close. It kept us talking. Um, you know, we really enjoyed it. So it became a tradition that when we did see each other, we'd go visit comic book stores together, buy comics, and try to get each other reading new stories. It also helps that he is a huge Marvel guy, and, and I'm sorry, everybody, I'm a big DC fan. Um, so <laughs> we, read, I, I, we read a lot of awesome stories, and we got to, you know, tell each other which ones were the best to be reading. So it was a lot of fun. But uh, ultimately... What has kept me in comics isn't even the stories that they tell, but it's how the stories are told. You know, somehow along the way, I, I ended up with a copy of Scott McCloud's Understanding Comics in my hand. And from that point on, it's never really been the same for me. Comics became everything. They became an obsession. And I really wanted to learn more about comics theory and how comics work. So I consumed all of McCloud's work, I, you know, the Eisner trilogy, you know, Sherry Grunstein, Barbara Costema's books, um, and then moved on to reading more books about comics. And uh, it's been all comics all the time since. Aww. <laughs> I, love it. I love that. That's like a, such a good winding story. I love it so much. Well, let's talk I a little bit know, about. Yeah, go well, ahead. Before, before that, we just can you tell us where the house is where I can trick us? Yeah. <laughs> Is it still there? <laughs> Do they I, accept adults? <laughs> I, you know what? I'm going to start that tradition over. I've decided I'm going to start giving out comics at Halloween. I don't know why I haven't done it yet, but it's, it's going to be my new thing for sure. So come to my house now. That's the answer. <laughs> I mean, I will. I mean, don't, 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 <laughs> I love Halloween, and, and like you're like, oh, I was disappointed for no candy. I I can buy candy. I mean, I can buy comics too, but but candy is like not you know one little tiny bite sized like Hershey square versus like a full comic book. You made out like that's the right yeah, way to go. I was, 
I was just a sweet summer child at the time. I just didn't understand what I had. <laughs> well, tell us a little bit about the Welcome to Slumberland project, Zach. Sort of what is it and what was the what was the genesis of that? Because we're all on this podcast, very interested in public scholarship. The podcast is a little bit of public scholarship itself. So, yeah, tell us about that project. For sure. So um, just kind of in some background context, I'll tell you a little bit about, you know, what my scholarship interests are and how it kind of led me to Welcome to Slumberland. So while comic scholar by night, by day I'm a K-12 English teacher. And so a lot of my research in comics kind of flows from an underlying focus on comics pedagogy and how comics can be used in the classroom. So I've always felt that the most natural fit for me in that conversation is really about how comics communicate and how they can be leveraged for the development of multimodal literacy and other 21st century skills. So my research has been heavily influenced by comics theory and you know, very specifically Dale Jacobs um, and his groundbreaking 2013 graphic encounters, which sort of introduced me to this idea of comics as sponsors for literacy. And so when I teach with comics, I spend a lot of time thinking about how the story is told beyond the words and pictures. I talk a lot with my students about how the layout of the page factors into the story, how the rhythm and pacing of the panels are effective, how gestural and embodied motion of the characters make us feel during the process of engaging with the story and so on. So comics theory is a huge interest of mine and I've found ways to bring that into my teaching in K-12 English studies. But also by definition of being an English teacher, I also have a pretty significant background in literary theory for my English degrees. And I'm, I've pretty naturally leaned towards reader response when it comes to studying and talking about comics. And specifically, I've become focused in transactional accounts of reading. And, you know, this is that literary theory that was originally proposed by Louise Rosenblatt way back in 1978, in the reader, the text, and the poem. And, you know, basically, transactional practices of reading contrast more commonplace understandings of reading as an interactional process. So what I mean when I say that is that interactional reading, you know, a reader and a text come together, but only the reader leaves that event changed. You know, think about the old text to sandbox idea. The reader comes along, digs through the text to find all the buried secrets left by the author, creator, and then they walk away with this new information or meaning that's been found. You know, the reader is different for having had that experience. But the text is still the text and is no different than it was prior to their coming together because it was all there left intentionally to be found anyway. In transactional events, a reader and a text come together and each is changed by the experience. So what the author creator intended isn't as important because the reader brings their own social, political, cultural, sexual, economic, etc. experiences to the event. And all of these influence what and how the reader experiences the text and the meaning that's made with them. So in this way, the text isn't a sandbox filled with treasures and secrets, but it's rather another collaborator who can both act upon and be acted upon in any given reading events in order to co-construct meaning. And essentially, because transactional approaches are so reliant upon, you know, phenomenology and, and this idea of experiences brought to bear upon a text at any given moment, the text can never be the same during more than one reading event because you come to it with different experiences and focuses each and every time. The big trick for me when I started, you know, using transactional approaches in my research was that it's never really been adapted to thinking about multimodal forms and how that complicates the process. So I don't think uh, it, that it changes a whole lot other than to force us to recognize that there are a few other partners involved in that reading process. And, and you know, that's the modes themselves. So I don't think it's contentious anymore to say that comics are a multimodal medium and that they're built upon the collaboration of visual, 
and linguistic and temporal, spatial, color, gestural, and other modes um, that communicate the story. So in a multimodal transactional framework, we just have to acknowledge that the text itself is a network of modes kind of simultaneously transacting with the reader at any given moment. And thinking about it as a network has really helped me because it allows me to visualize how modes can communicate across and between themselves at the same time that they do with the reader. So there's other really, you know, some more complicated nuance to that, but that's the general gist. And at its core, transactional theory is phenomenological, and it really encourages an experience with reading that goes well beyond the instrument, the instrumentalization of the medium. So for me, the application of transactional theory to comics presents a really fresh new approach to studying them and promises that even comics of yesterday have a place today because our transactionalism will be inevitably different than those from their original historical moment. And that long-winded explanation is a big part of how Welcome to Slumberland was actually born. So when the first pandemic lockdown hit, I was in the middle of taking a qualitative research methods course for my PhD, and I was very attuned to how impactful these closures were going to be for qualitative research and working with participants. It forced a lot of people to be super creative with how they engage in their research and, and engaged with participants, and I wanted to be a part of that. Around the same time, I was reading through the two-volume Tashin collection, which are absolutely gorgeous collections of Windsor oh, McCain's yeah. Little Nemo series. If, for anybody out there interested, they are like the best. And I'd recently been given those as a gift. And so, you know, for those unfamiliar with McKay, his comics were published in the early 20th century at many American newspapers, but primarily the New York Herald and the New York American. Um, and his most famous strip was the full-page, full-color comic, Little Nemo in Slumberland. Today, McKay is remembered as a pioneer, maybe innovator is a better word, of the comic's form, and many of his pages are still highly recognizable for their experimental design and for pushing the boundaries of what comics could be and do. And so it sort of came together really well that, you know, I would propose a social media research project that would exemplify ways that qualitative research could continue during the pandemic era, and that I would build it around comics-based research that would have implications for future classroom practice and understanding transactional reading events. I presented uh, the project to the Ethics Committee for Review at Brock as a transactional reading project, and once they approved it, I kicked off my 549 days of tweeting uh, in May of 2020. <laughs> In, in, in much the same way that this podcast handles a single issue of Excalibur every week, I took a single strip from the Little Nemo series each day and, and had conversations with my participants about our reading experiences and interpretations. So I completed the data collection portion of the project this past January, and I'm now thinking about the analysis and where slash how to publish some of my findings. I absolutely loved working on the project. So I'll admit that it became a lot more work than I ever thought that it would. Um, <laughs> and I'm really happy to have done it. I met some amazing people through the project and I built some great friendships. And I'm actually speaking at the Popular Culture Association Conference tomorrow on the Windsor McKay hey. Roundtable with two brilliant scholars who were also stalwart participants of my project. So it's really exciting. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, can I ask you briefly before we start talking about uh, <laughs> this issue of Excalibur, which is not as good as Little Nemo. <laughs> Do you have any experience with the series that is Excalibur? Are you coming in totally fresh? Is this your first experience? No, I am coming in totally fresh. And I think that's okay. part of the thing that excites oh, me. Oh, I'm so sorry. Um, 
I know. Well, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> so funny, I, I mean, I've, I have experience with, you know, um, Kurt and with Kitty and with Rachel and different versions of them, um, but never in Excalibur. And I've, this is the first issue of Excalibur that I've ever read in completion. So uh, I'm really excited about what that means, you know, from somebody who is interested in transactional events. Yeah. Um, it, it's really exciting for me. So, yeah. It's mostly up from here. I mean, yeah. there, are, there are there are there are worst issues, but like not many. <laughs> well, I'm excited about that too, and I want to get to your first impressions, Zach. So let's get through our issue summary, and we'll we'll come back and enact some transactional reading with your reaction to this comic. Thank you so much. I know we've got lots of lovely listeners reading along with the pod. We'd never let you dissolve into goo, and we could have easily saved you. But as always, let's start today's bombast with a plot summary. Air Parent opens in the Who Helicarrier, which is apparently some something they have, where Alison Stewart explains the convoluted plot details to the members of Excalibur. A scientist, Dr. Jonathan Kerr, along with his life model decoy, Norm, and an evil version of the Airwalker robot have destroyed the village of Cairns Hollow in Scotland. Kerr can rearrange his own molecular structure and unravel others' DNA, and Airwalker is a self-repairing android made from one of Galactus's former heralds. Alison gives each member of Excalibur a mission. Nightcrawler will prevent Norm from detonating a nuclear bomb, Kitty will investigate Kerr's lab and find the Airwalker prototype, Megan is assigned to destroy the lab, Rachel is supposed to stop Care, and Brian will destroy Airwalker. In our first vignette, Kurt finds Norm at the fabulously dated Galleria shopping center in Glasgow. When the locals recognize him as an obvious mega celebrity, Kurt discards his unconvincing disguise and gets into a fight with Norm, in which he embraces the 90s of the moment to fire an enormous gun many times. The conflict ends with Norm arming his nuclear device, but Kurt teleports him into the sky where the bomb explodes and somehow doesn't cause a massive nuclear fallout, but whatever, moving on. Meanwhile, in our second vignette, we catch up with Kitty at Kara's vault, phasing through a bunch of computers. She gets attacked by a robot that is really the alien from Aliens. She retreats underground and eventually kills the robot in a river of boiling hot magma. In our next vignette in Kara's lab, Megan has taken the attributes of a cobra, which is really important because Geis wanted to draw her as a cobra lady. I mean, because being a cobra um, protects her from the biology warping particles in the lab. It all makes so much sense. She plants the bomb, but then encounters the cyborg cold blood who first opposes her then gets one over to her side they drive off together as the lab explodes from there we head to a pub in scotland where rachel encounters dr care who's mutated into a frightening new creature a result of experimenting on himself fluid from his hands turns the whole bar into goo everyone except rachel rachel can't kill care because of his regenerating powers so instead she imprisons him inside a glass monolith where he will die and regenerate indefinitely <laughs> <laughs> pretty badass actually but <laughs> next in Molenshire Brian fights Airwalker there's a bunch of magic sciencey MacGuffin-y stuff that happens and then Brian explodes Airwalker but since the explosion took place on a cosmic scale the quote-unquote small things like Brian and the town and the earth itself are completely unaffected again just go with it finally at the lighthouse Lockheed scares off a couple of goofy incompetent who agents Krieger and Steinman who are trying to impress their boss by bugging the lighthouse. Lockheed uses one of Brian's spare uniforms to convince them the house is haunted. In the conclusion, Excalibur returns home and everybody laughs at Brian, as you do. Okay, so let's start with those first impressions coming to you, 
you, our honored guest, Zach. We've already apologized to you for this comic, and you can tell from my summary of it, I wasn't the biggest fan. I've got other gripes, which we'll get to. But um, yeah, you're diving in fresh to Excalibur, Zach. What was your first impression of this comic book? Yeah, so I'm happy to go first, actually. Um, I'm going to forego any discussion of the story and plot, because I think for me, what I was most interested when I was reading it was obviously um, the vignettes drawn by seven different artists. So, you know, you'll all be much more versed um, on this particular element than I am, but I'm about 99% sure that this comic would have been created through the Marvel method, right? Both because it was 1991, and I think that it was still pretty heavily used, and I'm also pretty sure that Lobdell is a strong proponent of the method, or at least I vaguely remember reading in an interview somewhere where he spoke about giving his artists as few details as he could get away with, and et cetera, and so forth. So I find that really interesting in light of my biggest formal gripe with this comic, which is just how disjointed and fractured I felt that it was at a structural and spatial level. And that can probably be attributed to the Marvel method if it was being employed. You know, if Lobdell's providing these minimal details about the plot and, you know, potentially character speech, all of a sudden, you know, a method that might work super well when you're working with a single artist turns out to be a bit more problematic when you've got lots of cooks in the kitchen. And, you know, each artist is going away and making their own choices about page layout and spatial organization of their chapters, which leads to just a distinct lack of consistency throughout, I think. And, you know, that's not to say I didn't like any of it, because there are a couple of pages that I really, really liked and some choices that I thought were neat to see in an early 90s comic book. You know, for instance, um, the absolute best page without question in this book is in the Nightcrawler chapter when Mm. he is teleporting around the life model decoy. And just going to town on him with the machine gun. It's this really cool <laughs> politic image, right? Which, you know, politics are multiple panels that come together to create a single image. And it's just such a brilliant moment where the story is being propelled not by the visuals or the text, so much as by the space and temporal pacing of the page. So you get this really cool sense of Kurt's abilities here as he's teleporting, not just around the character and the figure, but around the page. And because the LMD is standing in the exact same position in all of the panels that make up the politic, you get this feeling as though Kurt's teleporting incredibly fast and the pacing intensifies in a really cool way during this moment until the gun jams and it's immediately halted by the LMD just grabbing a hold of Nightcrawler's head, which I just, I thought it was such a brilliant composition for that moment. But then you contrast that with a page that is trying to do something similar in a different chapter, but just doesn't communicate or function successfully at all. And I'm talking about the Kitty chapter when the alien, um, I mean, sorry, prototype, and Kitty are (laughs) raising through the floor of the lab and they come to that underground basement filled with liquid hot magma. And Kitty has the idea to make herself solid as she's falling and grab a hold of the stalactite to watch the prototype fall in. And to represent this, we get a three-panel layout in long vertical columns, which is a great start, but rather than depicting the descent and the propulsion or feeling of falling in a downward motion across these panels, we instead get this really confusing reverse order drawing where Kitty is low on the column in the first panel, somewhere in the middle on the second, and then near the top of the panel on the third, which sort of communicates the opposite feeling of falling to me. And 
considering we just had such a brilliant use of politic in the chapter before, it feels really strange that this wasn't the choice here, you know, because it would have solved the problem neatly and allowed for a more dynamic representation of the fall. And ultimately, the moment is trying to do the exact same thing as the last example does, because it even imitates, you know, when she grabs the stalactite and tries to have the feeling of motion stop really quickly, but it's way less successful. And so I guess I just wonder if this might be an example of the limitations of the Marvel method, you know, since I would argue that it contributes at least within this multi-artist model in a reading experience that's just super disjointed and lacks formal consistency. Yeah, that's really interesting. I was definitely going to ask you about how we read these vignettes sort of in conversation with each other. And that's a really interesting example of it, because I'm guessing that moment and sort of the disjointedness of that moment stood out to you more because of the previous the previous vignette and how it handled something similar. But um, my minor contribute to these observations, because I'm going to complain a little bit about the representation of women in this comic, is that it's sort of a well-known thing that artists tend to like Nightcrawler. That's not exclusively true. John Byrne did not but artists tend to like Nightcrawler because he's a character that works so well with designing dynamic visual representation. And I just got the sense from the Kitty segment that there was some dynam- dynamism there, but I think to me that's an example of you know the artist not embracing the dynamism of her powers as effectively as they might have done. But I mean, that's maybe me reading too much into it because this this comic just made me just made me mad in terms of the representation of Kitty and Rachel. But we can talk more about that. Let me come to you, Andrew and Mav, for first impressions, and then we'll, we'll break down some of those specifics again, because I love what you're bringing to it, Zach, in terms of, I think, focusing on the art is how we'll get through this episode, although I know we will also do some plot griping as well. But yeah, I'll come to you, Andrew, because we haven't heard much from you yet. First impressions of this comic book, what are you particularly frustrated or interested <laughs> interested by? I don't know. I, I think... This is, to me, sort of a style over substance issue. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe that that leans into some of the things that were just mentioned. I feel like Lobdell is working hard to make Excalibur cool in a way that they want. It's almost <laughs> trying to make them a 90s team. I think the, the image that I'm fascinated with, and this is going to sound a little petty, but I do think this is reflective of one of the bigger problems with the, the issue at large, is the splash page where... He, Brian is talking to Alessand uh, and then he says, well, if nobody's going to ask us, and then they do like a transition to a scene of them three feet outside the plane. He says Excalibur mm. will have to volunteer, but like two of those people can't fly. So you have Nightcrawler teleporting approximately 10 feet outside the yeah, plane I know. to like fall to his death. They're all going to different places. Is Kitty going to walk? to the lab was that the plan like, like it's just so under considered and it's not grounded in any reality it's just choosing a rule of cool over any consideration for character and, and i know lobdell's hands are tied because he's not the main writer of excalibur right this is this is a filler so it's, to me it's just an issue that's trying to work on something tonally that is not consistent with the rest of excalibur and i think it's a showcase for artists and i'm really happy to engage with it on that level um, I just wish the story had some more character development to it and some more interest in a the grounded sort of reality, I guess. Yeah, that's fair. And I mean, even in the Nightcrawler gun sequence, like I was really trying to think whether there is another time where he's ever fired a gun. And there's one potential comic where he did that I can think of where he's having a fight with Scalp Hunter in like a 2000s era comic. And other than that, I like can't think of anything. And he even remarks on it here like, I won't usually pick up a gun, but because I'm not really hurting you, because you're not really real, this is fine. <laughs> I did think that was funny because it was just so like blatant, but it like speaks to your point, Andrew. Like, we're 90s afying. Excalibur in a lot of ways in this comic so of course Kurt has to have a huge machine gun and at least he remarks on how out of character that is but 
<laughs> I agree that it does produce a very dynamic page, at least. Mav, I know you don't even want to talk about this comic, but oh, no, where no, no, are no, you no. at? <laughs> well, well so, so the brilliance of, of Simon's sig sig signature is that, like, you think that if you were going to make your signature into a dinosaur, it would be going from right to left because you'd think that you'd want the head first. But no, he ends with the head. The N at the end of his name, that's the, that's the head of the dinosaur. Isn't that fascinating? Oh, okay. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't know. Okay. I have real mixed feelings on this. Like I said, these are some of my favorite artists. I, I, I've said before when he filled in, Ron Lim was one of my favorite artists at, these, at this time. Mm. I have every single issue of Savage Dragon to this day. I've stuck with <laughs> Eric Larson throughout his career. I am a fan. He's made good decisions. He's made bad ones. This was a bad one. <laughs> like so much of this is just... It's sure, it's a showcase of artists. I take issue with, with Andrew's point that, you know, Lobdell's, you know, he's not the writer of record for Excalibur at this point when he's writing this. So his hands are tied. But I don't think so because this isn't a fill-in issue. This is a special edition. This doesn't yeah. have to exist. There's no reason for this to happen. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, and I'm, I'm not I'm saying that to be funny partly, but not just. It's not a fill-in issue where, oh, Alan Davis is behind schedule again. Somebody do something for merch. That's not what happened here, right? This was a, someone went out of their way to publish the story where everyone is out of character, where it's barely a team story. Yes, the issue of how do they get to the places they go? I don't know. Why are they doing it? The fact that the villain is Airwalker because Galactus, what? Like, none of it makes any sense. It feels done at random. And is it Marvel method? I mean, maybe, but like, there's been other books that use this that have multiple artists. Um, the Wedding of Reed. So there's lots of them, right? And Stan invented the Marvel method because he was writing 87 books at Marvel and he just didn't have time to think, right? So he was just like, well, I'll just make Jack do all of it, right? That was like part of the, the brilliance of the Marvel method. But he actually did try like there was, there was intent to a lot of the stuff, even if it was like, even if there was things that were just weird where Stan's like, I don't know, Jack drew a guy with a surfboard, so I guess I got to come up with something, which is how Silver Surfer was created, right? There was still some internal logic to this. These characters are out of, are out of character, even for the way in which Lobdell writes them. I've, I've complained before. I don't like Lobdell's version of Brian. This is not even Labdell's version of Bryant. I don't know what this is. Labdell's version of Kitty is not this dumb. I don't like how he writes her, but she's not just sexistly stupid here. She is actively stupid and like survives. She's like comedy bimbo face looking at like equations, unable to right. figure them out and, and being like, oh, woe is me. Like, I, I, I think she's a that's super genius, be, people. <laughs> yeah, and I and I and I I think he's. I don't think she's actually supposed to be thinking she's dumb. I think she's supposed to be like making a joke, but it doesn't come off as a joke. It just comes off as bad writing. Mm -hmm. Like, and and again, not just sexist, actively bad. And 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 I'm trying to distinguish there because I don't like a lot of sexist tropes. But I mean, even in its sexism, it feels lazy, and that's weird. It it just it just feels like so much of this was just like why were these decisions made i don't think that they're decisions do megan and cold blood have sex i think they do because uh, like they don't fight she's just kind of there and then she's like well i gotta pay you somehow and he's like well you know I'm, i mean because you're, you're a mercenary i've got to find some way to pay you and i'm like that joke means they fucked right but that doesn't seem like megan i i don't know 
anything that's going on in this book. And I'd forgotten what it was like to read it. So I'm mad at the audience once again, because I read this. I'm like, why? Why were these things done? And even even with some of my favorite artists, like this is um this book reads very much like uh, like for when I see like Eric Larson, who again I'm a huge fan. This book reads like somebody who is going to be quitting their job next week. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is what which is when it came out. This is what happened. This book came out in December 1991, the week before Eric Larson quit his job <laughs> and started a new co- started a new company. So that and that's how it feels. It feels like that about everybody. Yeah, I want to situate this a little bit historically within the Image Revolution, and I think we'll do that next i i just wanted to say briefly just because i really we've been back to alan davis issues for a while and we hadn't had a lobdell issue for a while and i just god i had such a reaction to like reading his representation in particular of rachel in this comic like kitty as well but just like i don't know i i just wanted to underline it because we've complained about it before but i just wanted to add a couple of things about it because I don't know. I'm mad about a lot of women's rights shit these days. So like, maybe it's just getting to me, but just the like hyper objectification of Rachel when he writes her. And I actually like Leonardi's art for the Rachel section, like quite a Mm -hmm. bit. I think he does a really nice Rachel in that section. So this isn't actually on an art level. It's just like on the incessant objectification in Lobdell's writing, because like, even in the scene with Nightcrawler at the mall, there's no little girl present there. That's like, oh, Rachel is a cool power fantasy. Tell her I think she's cool. It's just like men asking for Rachel's number. It's like Rachel. Rachel only exists in the consciousness of other people in this comic as a sex object. And it's exhausting. And then in the bar scene too, it's just like comment after comment objectifying her. It's like the only thing people can think to say or respond to her is just an objectifying comment. It's just so much. And I just think that like, if you don't necessarily have that experience of being objectified, you might not understand how totally alienating that is to like read because it's not physical violence but it is linguistic violence Mm -hmm. and when i think about myself just like walking down the street and the way i've had like my day derailed by that kind of catcalling and even just like one comment you know you're like going about your day and you like think you're safe you're in your own thoughts and then somebody like reminds you that you're an object and like if we're like a minoritized person in any way we can have those kinds of experiences i'm not saying this is like only about being a woman but like at the same time it just is one of those things where when I'm reading a comic, I think about who is this for, right? Like, how is a woman reading this comic supposed to react to Rachel as a power fantasy when this is what you're being offered? And it has so much to do with why I avoid identifying with women in comics, because if I do, then I have to place myself in the position that Rachel is in in a comic like this, and it's intensely, intensely uncomfortable. Like, again, I think about the way my day is derailed by, like, one catcall. Imagine if I'm fighting for my life and being bombarded with constant catcalls, and that's the only way that anybody in the entire universe relates to me it's just exhausting like it makes me feel ill and it just really stood out to me in this comic book and i feel like i haven't really sounded off on it like as much as i could have in past episodes so i just wanted to say my piece on it i don't want to focus the whole episode on it but anyway that's my mini rant about it i just i mean if i, if I can just in, jump in really quickly i think that's really important Anna, because you know like i'll start by mentioning that i'm not a big scout Lobdell guy and I haven't read a ton of his work and it's by choice because you know I read um, I, I, stuck around, I stuck around with Red Hood and the Outlaws in the New 52 for far too long and yeah. witnessed how Starfire was treated and and so it's not a yep. surprise to me to see this in his work but I, I think that you know this pervasive sexism that, that you're mentioning here and and the way that you've touched on it is important you know Again, my research from a transactional perspective, I mean, your reading and your experience with this text is wholly unlike anything that I could possibly experience, 
for exactly the reasons that you talked about. I mean, this comic objectifies its female characters, especially Rachel, in a way that I've simply never experienced because of my gender identity. And so even if I can recognize it during my collaboration with the book, the experience is phenomenologically different than yours in a really profound way. And so I think those implications are really massive. Like, I, you know, as, as a comics educator, I ask myself what it means for me, a male comics educator, to bring that text into a classroom, for example. Not that I ever would, this particular text, but as an example, <laughs> talking about it. You know, to bring this into a room with girls and women who have experienced similar instances of violence through objectification that Rachel endures here. And, you know, by extension and thinking to my work with McKay and some of the horrific racism that permeates a good portion of his Little Nemo comics, you know, Mm -hmm. I'm constantly wondering what responsibility we have in choosing to re-examine these comics as opposed to just sort of letting them live forever in their historical moment and focusing instead on less sexist or less racist works to be found today, right? So I I think as comics educators, we have a responsibility to be mindful of that. And and I'm not necessarily saying that we don't engage with these texts, but I think that it's incumbent on us to do so in a mindful way. And, you know, when I think on a larger scale, this turn on focusing on the phenomenological experience of reading and how that impacts potential meaning making is really is a really important move in comic studies. And we need to acknowledge that the impact that a collaboration with a particular work can have on a person is significantly different for each person. And, and I think that, you know, you've just done that and demonstrated that right here. Well, and I mean, I'll, I'll add too that like the experience of teaching comics can be very different too, depending on who you are. I mean, when I teach superhero comics, there's so much that we get used to in terms of representation in these comics. When I yeah. teach comics to young women who have not read superhero comics anymore, they are appalled. <laughs> like They are really <laughs> appalled by the bodies and the costumes. And even in art that most of us think is like pretty PG, like they thought Dark Phoenix Saga was really sexist in its visual representation when I taught it. And I didn't disagree with them. They were really upset by the portrayal of Storm as a slave and some of the ways that that was fetishized. And I'm like, Mm-hmm. you are not wrong <laughs> you are definitely not wrong <laughs> but it's just sometimes we almost step past it because some of these things we think are just conventional within this genre and I, I think so much about something that Nola said um, Nola Fow, editor of Women Write About Comics who was a guest on our podcast when we talked about another very bad comic in Prometheum Exchange right. but you know you I just no get this feeling I know but <laughs> you remember Nola because Nola is amazing but I'm oh, I remember saying, Nola I just yeah. she was on the show for no apparent reason <laughs> We, we talk about nothing. <laughs> but you know that you don't want to have to apologize for these texts that you love so much. And just that's where so much of the frustration comes from, where like you have a character who's so wonderful and unique and special like Rachel. And even we have like a good visual representation of her here. Again, I really think that Leonardi does some dynamic work in that section with Rachel that I like. And it's just like Lobdell's writing of it. Just, I mean, that's an example of the multimodality as well, right? Because, you know, I could enjoy it purely on a visual level but the text is interfering with that reading and anyway let's talk about some other stuff i want to talk a little bit about the historical context here we haven't talked that much about the sort of 90s art boom and the rise of the superstar artists and stuff so (laughs) if you want to jump in on a map and situate us (laughs) yeah okay this is i would so much rather do this okay so situational context for our listener in the 90s there is a point in which Several artists at Marvel become, for lack of a better term, just 
rock stars. And by the several artists, I mean Todd McFarlane, Jim Lee, Rob Liefeld, and to a lesser extent, Mark Silvestri, Eric Larson, Jim Valentino, uh, Ron Will Sportasio. There are a few, there are a few of them, but like suddenly books are being sold on artwork, not just on writing. This is much of, and Andrew, you've talked about this before as well. This is much of the impetus for what eventually causes Claremont to leave Marvel. But before that, the, what we call the, you know, we call it the image revolution because of what happened after, but what actually causes this isn't just new artists. It's changes in printing techniques. In the days of Jack Kirby, if you ever get a chance to see original Jack Kirby pencils and inks from like the from like the golden and silver ages of comics, like if you see if you ever see like live an actual page of the artwork, the line work is amazing. It's phenomenal. And the printing presses were the equivalent of like three DPI. So not so it's all lost. It's just all it's all like yep. mushed together and not there because of the way we had three color printing. It's just so much of that is lost. We get the ability to do that in the 90s. And so In Vogue becomes this, what I what I call then, then inking style. Jim Lee is the master of this. And to a lesser extent, even though I'm not a fan, Rob Liefeld, very good at it, where you get these very thin lines that are meant to evoke the idea of realism. But in, in, in actuality, there's a lot of lines that are just sort of anatomically incorrect, but they are... <laughs> they are a very expressive sheening that makes their work distinctive. McFarlane, Lee, and Liefeld in particular get very known for this. Liefeld is such a big rock star that they're putting him in commercials for jeans. That's not a joke. <laughs> um, Levi's, right? Yep. Is your button, is your fly button? My button is fly. This is a thing that uh, Rob Liefeld does. He does, he, he, watch the watch the movie. I'm not trying to, watch the commercial. Spike Lee asks him the commercial, do you have any formal art training? And Rob Liefeld says, nope, none at all. So proud Just a himself. vivid imagination. He's so proud of it. Robin's actually a really nice guy if you ever meet him. He's like, he is. He's like, the, he's the, he's the nicest person in comics. He's great to his fans. But yeah, so this is the world that we're living in, in 1989. And in 1990, because they're so hot, they demand equal billing to the writers. And this is when you end up with New Mutants becoming X-Force with, with X-Men rebooting and, you know, Jim Lee getting equal credit to Chris Claremont, which causes Claremont to leave. You get all these promotions of all these writers. They're being underpaid and they don't own any of the work and they are rightfully bitter about it. They, um are approached by a company called Malibu, which is, you don't care about, just know that they were another comic book company that was around the 90s, to um, jump ship. They talk, doesn't work out. Then they decide, you know what? If we're going to jump ship, why don't we start our own company where we will own everything? So they start a company called Image, and they just basically walk out. And in fact, they have a meeting um, with Tom DeFalco, then editor-in-chief at Mar of Marvel, in December of 1991, the month this comic came out, these guys have a meeting where they say, so we're leaving. And well, what can we do? No, there's nothing you can do. We don't have any demands. We're just letting you know that we're leaving and you should fix things because otherwise other creators are going to leave. And then the top creators, the and by creators, they're all pencilers. The top creators in the Marvel Comics, uh, in Marvel Comics at that time of all the best-selling books all quit the same day. And they walked out and they started their own company, which became Image. And frankly, I mean, I'm a fan of some of the stuff, but they largely proved that they're not writers. Um, they didn't have, <laughs> without Claremont to fix things. Some of them got better, yeah. but it became just. Uh, but it became at that time the early Image stuff. You have Young Blood, you have Spawn, you have Savage Dragon. A lot of it is just, oh my god, this is all very samey, 
Wildcats and it struggles. It becomes, it sells a lot at the beginning and it struggles, but they were breaking records even, you know, before the image, before the image jump ship. And even after they're breaking sales records over and over again, it's largely believed to, to be because of the stylistic way that the, uh, that the art looked. So it's a bunch of thin lined, very muscular, overly expressive bodies in both sexuality and musculature. So you have statuesque looking men and very large breasted women with very thin waists um, and lots of pockets, pouches, pockets became a thing on superhero outfits, which is actually smart. That was Jim Lee saying, um, how come superhero outfits don't have pockets? They where would they carry stuff. So he adds pockets, military like gun belts to everybody and Cable happens, so everyone has a gun. Like, there's massive guns everywhere. And that's what this world is is, is approaching. Heir apparent very clearly because uh, of these, you know, Leonardi, Larson, not, not all these guys went to, went to Image, but Larson did. These are some of the hot artists at the time. Lem, Leonardi, Larson, uh, guys. These are guys who are, like, breaking records. So it's, let's put them all on one book and showcase their art. We'll give them each a character from Excalibur to kind of do a story with and I guess connect it. And the story doesn't matter because stories don't matter at all anymore. All that matters is art. So I guess Labdell, you know, he'll make the deadline. And I think that's how much how much thought was put into this. Labdell will write some words down and make the deadline. And does it matter what happens in the story? No, as long as it's pretty. And that's how this feels. So yeah. that was the world of image in 1991. And it actually, it actually, I, I'm, I'm talking like I'm down on it. Image becomes innovative for many, many reasons, some good, some bad. The effects that Anna is talking about of the very hypersexualized women, that becomes a serious issue with it, with Image, which, however you feel about it, is innovative and does shape the comic book industry for a decade, two decades to follow. And also, Image is responsible for the fact that there are creators' rights at all in yeah, comics. Yeah, Image yeah. Is, so there's a lot of good that comes with it. But situating where we are historically, we are on the eve of this happening. Literally, it probably happened the week this book came out. Because this book comes out, I think, December 3rd, 1991. Sometime in December when they quit. Yeah, I know. It's situated at a really interesting time that way. I mean, can I come back to you with it, Zach? Like, you're someone that does a lot of visual analysis. What to you typifies kind of the quote unquote extreme style of the 90s? And I'm putting that in scare quotes because I think one <laughs> of the misconceptions that we have is that it, Mav's completely right that there is a sameness to a lot of this art. But at mm -hmm. the same time, we see in a book like this that each artist clearly has their individual style mm -hmm. as well. You can tell that these are drawn by different artists. They have artistic quirks that I can certainly recognize but um but yeah what do you think zach sort of if there is a through line to the extreme 90s art style what is the through line what are some of the through lines i mean i, I think i'm just gonna be honest and say i i don't think i can answer that question in the sense that you know i came to comics really late and so i don't have a ton of experience with 90s comics i mean i think it's you know when i think of people like mav mentioned like i think of bob liefeld i think of jim lee i mean i think of todd mcfarland i mean those are kind of the guys that to me typify that, you know, era of 90s excess. Like, I got a huge kick out of seeing Eric Larson's Captain Britain just, like, pink-faced from the strain as he's flying <laughs> out of that, uh, you know, that, that wicked panel in, in his chapter. But, I mean, to me, that almost, that that is the perfect example of what the 90s were. And, I mean, as somebody who doesn't have as much experience reading that, time period in comics i think i'm a really bad person to 
to even try and break it down. Like, I'd much rather hear what you guys have to say about that and kind of, you know, go from there. (laughs) Well, I'll come to you with it, Andrew. I mean, I sort of want to ask a question about the dominance of artists over writers. I mean, you do the Claremont Run, a project focused on the intent on the kind of auteurship of a writer. Like, did we see a shift in like the 80s and 90s towards artists being more crucial? I mean, you've talked already about Claremont was told to write dialogue for Jim Lee. Yeah, that's right. That was sort of the final straw. Um, Instead of firing him, they told him he'd be allowed to script the issues, uh, which is soul crushing. And he accepted it for some reason for a couple months. Um, For like three months, right? Three months? Yeah, yeah, roughly. Yeah, Yeah, no, I I think Mav's been um, very eloquent in describing the situation. But I think the, the big ramification is just the idea that you have story you have like script plot and all that kind of stuff and then you have art right Uh, and the question is what does the story serve does the story serve characterization does it serve advancing a plot does it serve um um, symbolism does it serve theme or does it serve the images uh and i I think the transition that we saw very clearly when it comes to story was set us up give us something that will look good uh i mean pew pew hubba hubba i guess is 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 the sort of mentality (laughs) that they go with um (laughs) But I also want to deflect a little bit, too, because I know, Anna, you've done some work on the image creators, particularly Liefeld. So I'd I'd also be really curious to hear your take on it. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I've got lots of thoughts on it. One of the things that really interests me about it is the presumption of maturity in this artwork, which is very funny when we think now we often make fun of this era for being very immature. But exactly Mm -hmm. like what Mav said with the use of fine lines and (laughs) we knew they were good artists because they drew a lot right like i mean that's sort of the impression that you get with like all the fine lines and then you think about somebody like mcfarlane who just fills the pages and it's very Mm -hmm. impressive the way he fills the pages i mean he'll like put sticky spider webs sticking together all of the (laughs) panels like on a page in which spidey's fighting the lizard right and it's like every single inch of real estate is used often with black gutters rather than white gutters to give that experience of maximalism right but the issue that i end up having with it is pacing and we see that come across in some of the stories here as well there's sort of a there's a pursuit of dynamism but like often at the expense of storytelling so something like you know we've sung the praises of jackson geist but there's a sequence in the in the jackson geist section where like megan goes from just like one position like sitting down to like we're told she's attacking but we don't (laughs) see how she got onto his back there's like a sequence (laughs) missing there And that's like an example of like, to me, it's like, well, he wanted to draw something, but he doesn't give us the connective tissue from like one moment to the next. And there are worse examples. I mean, like, Liefeld is much, much worse for that kind of thing. This is not, this is not Geis's best work. I, I adore his work. nobody's best work. This this feels, this feels rushed because Liefeld's done. I mean, again, I like teasing him because he's an easy target. Ha ha ha, I can't draw feet. You know, like there's little things like that, right? But. <laughs> but but there's actually I'll, I'll be fair to Liefeld for what he does he is very good at it he is very good at at, yeah. at at the thing that he does he is typically on time he had attitude problems which 
old Liefeld, you know, as an older man, a middle-aged man, he has apologized profusely for some of the negative things that, you know, his head got too big. And he knows that. That's why he is no longer an image creator. He's not a partner anymore in what's left of the company because, like, his friends were like, dude, no. And they got rid of him. You know, like, there's like, <laughs> like, like, I, so I understand that. But like, what you're saying, though, just there needs to be a writer on this and not just somebody who is collecting a check for, I'll put some words down, which is how it feels. Not, being not a Labdell fan, it's not even Labdell's best work. I don't know why this book exists. Well, I mean, it exists to sell the artwork. And I mean, we didn't mention the way that the artwork is sort of connected to the to the collector boom of the 90s as well, which became the collector bust very quickly, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, the other thing I would just underline, I think, are the ways that we can read the extremeness of the art is connected to culture and that's sort of a more complicated conversation relating it to things like fitness culture of the 80s and 90s and the extreme bodybuilding of the 80s and 90s. But this was a time in which cultural conceptions of the body were changing. I mean, steroids being a huge factor during this era, sort of the rise of action movies and professional wrestling as a massive entertainment during that era, mm -hmm. something Mav obviously knows lots about. And some of those of things influence. Yeah, I mean, some this of those. The, this is the start of that. Yeah. This yeah, exactly. Where, uh, wrestling was in a slump up until about about now. Uh, uh, 91 92 maybe 93 like it, it was it was um we're going into what becomes the the stone called steve austin era like we're not we're not there yet but um wrestling in the 80s post hulk hogan was sort of dying out so yeah this was i, I hadn't thought about that but that's a good thing good thing to point out well and you think about like how many sort of cultural connections you have in a comic like this i mean we have the robot that's designed after alien i mean sort of the popularity of hyper muscular cyborgs was very much a terminator thing and all of those <laughs> things are sort of bound up in like i mean even just think of the character of schwarzenegger the way he's bound up in the increasingly hyperbolic nature of male bodies in the 80s feeds into something like terminator which feeds back into a comic like this and the way that bodies change in the superhero genre as well Wow. So I find it interesting as sort of a complex cultural milieu that we can read into these comics. And yeah, I, I find the extremeness interesting in what it reveals. And my argument for why we should take it seriously as a style is that I think sometimes we want to append it from what superhero comics do regularly. We're like, oh, well, that excessive artwork just has nothing to do with good superhero comics. I'm like, well, okay, superhero comics are always about bodily excess. And this is just mm -hmm. a different version of doing bodily excess. And I think when I've talked about it in some of my academic work in the past, I've argued that we just need to evaluate different uses of excess because different forms of excess are different. And even within the image creators, different forms of excess are different and different forms of excess are different even within the comic at hand. So it's a style and kind of a moment that I find interesting, despite finding it frustrating. Well, I'll say one little story, which is like, sort of speaks to like, I've done academic work on like Rob Liefeld and, you know, rhapsodized about his work in a way. But my first encounter with X-Men was actually the Pizza Hut birthday thing that they did in I think 92 <laughs> or 93. Yeah. And I forget who did the art on it. And I should know because I actually did look it up recently. But you know, it was like in the in very much in the Jim Lee style. And I remember being eight years old and seeing that artwork and all the boys at the party were sort of tittering about it. And the girls were at least I was and so did my couple of friends were very uncomfortable. And I just had such a sense that this is not the kind of thing I should be looking at. This is porn. And <laughs> that was my impression of it. Like at eight years old, I wouldn't have known to call it porn, but I would have been like, that's an adult bad thing. 
And that drove me away from comics for a long time because that was my perception of what comics were. And that's funny because the Pizza Hut birthday thing was the thing that was supposed to bring people into comics. So as an adult, I have like a healthy appreciation for the excess of the 90s. And I think there's a lot of things you can do with like queering the 90s art. I mean, think about how many Rob Liefeld characters have subsequently been retconned as queer. I find that very interesting because that excess can sort of bleed into queerness. But Mm -hmm. as a child encountering this artwork, I definitely found it very, very alienating. So that's a cuts both ways kind of thing for me in terms of my history with some of these styles. just want to note that the uh, X-Men Pizza Hut special was written by Scott Lobdell. <laughs> oh, of course it was. Of course it was. My, my long and tangled history with Scott. Mm-hmm. Cover art and pencils by um, Andrew Wildman. Inks by uh, Stephen Baskerville. So yeah. So yes, I I agree with everything you're saying, and I think um, I think as scholars, this is going to be weird because we usually kind of go. We're usually very ACA fan here, but I'm, I'm gonna, I'll go to I'm going to answer for um, comic scholars here and sort of complain about us, not me. And actually, not Anna. Um, <laughs> what? Not not Andrew or not you guys either. You you guys have never I've never heard say on it, but I'd say so, some people tend to look at it. It would be the kind of thing that you'd expect out of me or Anna, and that's why I'm that's why I'm excluding us. You wouldn't expect that out of Andrew, and you wouldn't expect it out of Zach. I don't think <laughs> people will complain about Liefeld and the image people like uh, as though oh why are you know this is garbage, this is trash just because of what it is. Everything from it is the entire bad girl face of comics. The 90s extremism, oh, this is awful garbage. We should not judge and we should look at good comics. And I think that's a thing that we can do as academics. That's unfair. Some of it is very interesting. I will say um, I am a big fan of not necessarily who the person is, but I think what is done with the early Sin City comics is brilliant. I would argue Mm. that as far as the, you know, the sexist extremism of what we look at as this bad girl phase of comics with its guns and muscles and bulging muscles and like ridiculously sexualized, objectified women, Witchblade is probably the most indicative of that ever. And what he's trying to do is intensely interesting. Sometimes he succeeds and sometimes he fails. And I understand why, like everything that Anna just said earlier about like how it would be impossible to read as a woman because you'd be like, oh God, why am I being constantly reminded of how objectifying this is? That's what Witchblade is, but it's good at doing what it's trying to do. This is bad at doing what it's trying to do. Even as much as like, I just want to be an excessive, you know, display of extreme artwork. This book feels bad at doing that. And that's my problem with it. Well, it's a complicated conversation, though. Like, I mean, I'm someone who's also done work on swimsuit specials. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I talked about that excess there as well. But in terms of that type of objectification... It's a context thing for me, like a lot of the time. Like, I don't know. I don't think I would have liked Witchblade as a little girl either. But I was like, I know I've read it. I've read it. But like, as an an adult woman, though, again, I can find, I can find joy in that, like through how Mm -hmm. hyper excess it is. And that like has a humor to it and everything. And like, there is even, yeah, I know. And there's a freedom to even that level of objectification because it is so divorced from reality but it's a context issue like when we think about applying some of this hyper objectifying logic to Excalibur you know a comic book that is very welcoming to diverse readers we've talked about that Mm -hmm. many times on the pod or like a character like Rachel which we've talked about her as a female power fantasy many times on the pod and kind of applying that logic to places where it's not appropriate like apply implying that Megan is like paying for 
cold bloods help with sex. That's when it becomes a problem. And that's a bigger conversation because that gets us to what is the ideal audience for various things. But yeah, I just wanted to be careful about that because it's not that hyper-objectification is always negative. I think it can be fun. And again, that's something that I was careful to talk about when I talked about some of this extreme art style as well, because I know lots of women that really enjoy it. I really genuinely do. And like, it's important to kind of acknowledge the freedom that these excessive bodies can sort of embody as well, like almost through their plasticity, right? Because they are so unreal. And I think so that's like, that's, yeah. Like, I yeah. know, you, I know you aren't because I've read your book, right? So like, so like, like, I know you won't be. But I mean, in general, I just think it, there's a tendency of comics academia to be dismissive oh, of, yeah. <laughs> of it entirely. And I was like, that's not really fair. Because um, there's, oh, yeah. there's actually lots of interesting stuff. That, I mean, I'm also speaking at PCA tomorrow at length about, you know, Alan Moore's Lost Girls, which is straight up porn. And mm-hmm. But there's something interesting that's happening there. So... <laughs> Well, yeah. And I mean, <laughs> I, I will just say briefly, because I want to talk, I want to go to some final thoughts and talk about some more scenes from this comic. But um, <laughs> when I did an article about McFarlane, Lee and Liefeld, the peer review comments that I got back for it were really funny. So if you're not in academia, you, you know, we send out papers and then we get anonymous comments back. So I don't know who wrote these, um, but it was <laughs> really funny. <laughs> But it was really funny because both peer reviewers like felt the need to write a paragraph denouncing the art before telling me they thought the article was good. (laughs) They're like, like, I want to be really clear. I hate the artwork of Lob Liefeld. And when I was reading it at the time, these were my thoughts about it and blah, 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 which was not relevant to what I wrote at all. But they just really didn't even even anonymously want to get associated with admitting that this artwork had value. And that was baffling to me. That's how intense the rejection of this entire era is within comics academia. And that's why exactly why we need to write about it. Because that <laughs> disavowal is what fascinated me and made me want to write about it. Um, anyway, let's come to some more stuff just from this comic before we completely run out of time. And yeah, let's come to some like visual scenes from this comic that did really interest us because Zach came up with a couple already and I'm going to come back to you first with it, Zach. But other scenes or other vignettes in this comic that you did find exciting or interesting or frustrating? It can be any of those things. Um, I think my gut level reaction here would just be again to mention Eric Larson on the Captain Britain chapter and, and you know, his extreme version of cartoon realism and how it sort of I felt it kind of fit with that chapter and kind of where it belonged with this, you know, bulky hyper masculine figure, but also the, you know, it fits with that large scale battle that was being fought. So the art and the story really collaborate well in that regard. But I mean, I, I'll admit that I'm more interested in hearing what you guys have to say, because because I definitely I mean, the the Nightcrawler chapter is definitely the one that stood out to me the most. I think that final image of uh, Captain Britain's uh, costume on fire was meant to to really be something special. But honestly, for me, the spatial organization of that last chapter just really flopped as like it was the biggest divergence from the comic's first chapter. And so I felt like it really, you know, broke its promise to me about what I was expecting. So I wasn't overly spectacularized with that. But uh, I really am really interested to hear what pages you guys like and uh and to get that experience i'll come to you with it andrew any sequences that you did like 
maybe not necessarily a sequence, but I kind of like the way that um, Megan was rendered uh, in some of the scenes, particularly in terms of her expression and posture. Uh, like as everybody already mentioned, the the narrative is very sexualizing of her, but I thought a lot of the images gave her weird amounts of agency in through this sort of naturalistic representation mm. in her facial expression that I I really liked. I thought there it kind of accelerated for me what was a failed potential to the story because the idea of like a megan solo story is always going to be interesting to me because that's a character who's always defined by who she's around so taking her out of that and then giving her that kind of visual agency i thought was really cool and i wish that there had been a greater fulfillment of that trajectory yeah that's certainly fair how about you mav any sequences from this comic that you actually did enjoy um i think ron Lim's version of ali sandy is great it doesn't look like her in that <laughs> yeah. in my head in my head well yeah. it, it's unfair right it doesn't look like her because in my head the perfect artist for her is alan davis but yeah. that's unfair that's just right. as far as like i like that he gave her kind of a a uniform not quite a costume but like it works in the it's davis basically draws her as a doctor who character and that's you know she's drawn yeah. and as though she's a member of unit which is a doctor who thing and Lim didn't want to do that so he made his own version of what presumably is in ron Lim world the who uniform or at least the brigadier's uniform for who and you know you see a couple of um, other grunts who are have similar but not exactly the same uniform i think it works i like how he renders her i like his artwork throughout i don't love his version of kitty but like his brian megan and rachel and nightcrawler i think are all fine to be fair everything that ron Lim does in this story he, he has the frame so it's a lot of people just kind of standing there but doing superheroes just standing there without the without being dynamic this is actually kind of hard that's what actually stands out for me oddly enough like it stands out for me as the good stuff because it's like look he's actually doing something he's standing out without this being a story about somebody teleporting around with guns he's standing out without it being overly sexualized he's standing out without it being um, a massive brute just wrecking everything around him so it's the one that's notable to me with it doing so little so i think that's um i think that's the one that means something to me that's good yeah definitely my favorite sequence was the nightcrawler sequence and not just because i'm a fan of nightcrawler <laughs> it was sort of like though i did like the aspects of it i mean like i like nightcrawler being a celebrity and getting recognized people like not just in a standish way but just like mm -hmm. in a we don't deal with the consequences of him abandoning the image inducer that much but this is an instance in which he's sticking with that and people recognize him and you know we can see a little bit just a little glimpse of what his world is like in that context and i did find that interesting and i do like the opening splash page where he's like up on the girders above the set of this very 80s mall that's just that's a really wonderful pinup by stelfreeze i like some of the work that he does does with kurt in this sequence it's the last panel too though in that story which i found really weird oh that it does like a circular thing yeah it just does the exact same repeated image with a different background yeah mm. i know which is clearly like intentional but i don't think it kind of quite comes off but yeah, well, I he guess sort of blinds back for. up. It was weird. I totally I didn't pick up on it. So that's failing of, of the writing. I did not pick up on that till you just said it. And definitely Look, the bomb thing man. made no yeah. sense. I like don't even understand what happened there. <laughs> so there's that. Um, all right, let's do some final, final thoughts. Um, I'll come to you last, Zach, but was there anything that any of us did want to highlight about this before we leave it behind? Any final gripes that we want to lob at this thing? The last page the ending joke which is supposed to be a bonding <laughs> moment maybe i should have blown up the planet or at least you fuckers like it was really weird so yeah. weird <laughs> 
I like enjoyed it on the weirdness level because I mean, yeah, it was super, super awkward. It reminded me a little bit of that awkward kitchen scene after the dream a little dream issue, (laughs) which was just like, ooh, (laughs) but it's a weird one. Mav, any final gripes to lob at this one? Well, my gripe would be the same thing. Like I, this is the last page again, even though it's Ron Lim artwork who, who I love, What's happening in it is, again, Megan talking to, to Kurt saying, if Brian wanted to destroy the universe, he would have. So there, by the way, I just slept with the cyborg. You know, like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, it's just the context of what, how they even got back here makes no sense. So that bothers me. That said, it's preceded by a delightful st- Lockheed solo story. And I'll always take one of those. There needs to be more. <laughs> um, like, so like, I, 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 yeah, I know well, I had to choose and I want, and I wanted to talk about the artwork, but like, I actually, I mean, it's short. Not much happens. I am questioning where did Lockheed find the spare Brian uniform? Because we know he only ever keeps one at a time. It's like one of the defining things about Brian is he's too stupid to have a spare uniform, but like, um, it's true. a cute story. I love. I I like that Lockheed is just like kind of anytime where Lockheed's left on his own to adventure. I always kind of love that. And this is actually kudos to Scott Labdell. He did a fine story about a character who can't even speak. <laughs> Great dialogue there, <laughs> or you know, like nothing happens. Why would Ali Sandy be bugging Excalibur? I mean, that's like that's a Nick Fury move, and she's not him. But okay, fine, whatever. No, it's um, even weirder than that. They're doing it on their own recognizance because they think it will impress their bosses. It's weird. Uh, whatever, but but like it, <laughs> it gave it gave Lockheed a chance to do some goofy stuff, and I like seeing Lockheed do goofy stuff. So that that was my happy stuff. I, I'd rather end on on good. <laughs> Yep, it's I a it's a Lockheed Home Alone story. I'll take it. Yes. Zach, any final thoughts from you to wrap up this issue? Uh, yeah, I think I think the last thing that I want to you know kind of end on is is just this idea. You know, we know this, but like comics are so unlike prose literature because the reading experience is directed by the spatial layout of the page. You know, it's not like monomodal prose fiction that's just words that we innately recognize as to be read from left to right. You know, the comics reader is at the mercy of the spatial articulation and guidance of the creators. And so in good comics, this can be manipulated to do such really cool things and force readers to be complicit in non-traditional reading experiences if that's what's desired. And it's really necessary when you begin to move beyond traditional gridded layouts. And and we do get some of that here in, in Air Apparent, right? And again, in the Nightcrawler chapter, which I think it's probably very clear now is my favorite, there are examples of a word balloon that guides the reader in a non-traditional reading order where you go, you know, left, right, right, left, right? Which, you know, without that, the spatial dynamics of the balloon not, you know, clearly placed and correctly between the panels would have just made for a really messy and potentially confusing layout. And generally what happens at the start of comics or a particular series is that the creative teams work to set up these expectations of how the book should be read by their organizational choices and readers slowly begin to unconsciously pick up the nuances and the distinctness of the creative team and it helps them navigate through the work that they create and if a team has no interest in being formally playful then they just fall back on more commonplace understandings of comics as following panels through a traditional grid but in this case we get Ron Lim's first chapter that features very little traditional gridding aside from that one inset column of pink guttered regular panels. So I was expecting so much more of that, so much more of this experimental organization throughout. And chapter two delivers on that promise. And then we just sort of start falling backwards and each one gets progressively less so with Kitty and Megan and Rachel's chapters and, and Brian's chapter and ending with Lockheed's. 
that are much more traditional in their organization, or right. I guess I should say less willing to step beyond traditional structures because they do occasionally do some neat things, but none of the chapters after after the Nightcrawler one actualizes the promise that I think I was made with me at the beginning, and that really bummed me out. Yeah, I mean, I didn't do a final thought, so I guess I'll just add that what bums me out about it is the failure of expectations in terms of if you have a different artist for each of the stories of these characters, you would hope that it's a synergy, right, where the art style of that artist fits the character, and these can be vignettes about these specific characters, and we can have the art style connected to character that way and speaking to character in that way, and I don't think that's something that we get. I think there's potential for that, I would say, in the Leonardi one, in the James Fry um, Lockheed one, and in the Stelfreeze Nightcrawler one. And I do like what Andrew was saying about the naturalism of, of Geiss for Megan and that being an interesting take on her. Although I don't think that entire vignette kind of comes off for me, but <laughs> for various reasons. But that's the thing for me that's missing from this comic, because if you have multiple artists within a single book, that is such an interesting interpretive project to be like, how do I think about these different versions of reality interacting and how am I going to be involved in that construction of meaning as a, as a reader slash viewer of this text? And that's a really interesting question in theory, but it's almost not an interesting question to me in terms of this particular <laughs> comic, because I just don't think it holds together thoughtfully if we were going to make an argument about how the styles or how for individual characters and then how they work together we would have to bring so much to it to make that happen I don't think it's a conscious I don't think it's a conscious choice to sort of pair these characters with these styles I almost wouldn't be surprised if they were sort of picked out of a hat like to to cover the chapters they cover we we're trying to end on a positive note and then I took it negative again and I apologize so let me just reiterate I genuinely do really like the stealth scene with Brian with Kurt in the mall. It's great. My pride broke it. My rage broke it. This excellent knight, who fought with fairness and grace, was meant to win. I used Excalibur to change that verdict. I've lost, for all time, the ancient sword of my fathers, whose power was meant to unite all men. Not to serve the vanity of a single man. So I think we will leave things there. I think we've we've given Air Apparent our best effort. We've smartened this comic up a significant amount. We've fulfilled the obligations of that legally binding Twitter poll. So <laughs> thanks in no small part to our, our super fabulous guest. So Zach, thank you so, so dearly for joining us. Before we go, we need to remind our lovely listeners of the stuff that you get up to. So if you would like people to find you online, where can they find you? And what work or projects or anything else? of yours should they be checking out well just thanks again for having me on everyone this was an absolute blast i really i actually really enjoyed talking about this comic even if we did have our gripes with it um <laughs> but, uh, folks folks can find me on socials at uh, zja rondinelli and can find welcome to slumberland if they're interested as at little nemo 1905 on twitter project that i'm most focused on now is an upcoming Canadian comic special issue of Canadian literature 
that I somehow have the privilege of co-editing alongside the absolutely remarkable Dr. Candida Rifkin from the University of Winnipeg. And that's going to be an incredible issue um, featuring some brilliant scholarship on Canadian comics and interviews by Canadian comics creators, Paul Paul, Tucci Anderson, Stanley Laney, Jeff Lemire, and hopefully one more amazing creator if we can work out the details and get her on board. So look for that to be published in November of this year. It was born out of our, our sort of first uh, conference, which was a public-facing conference on Canadian comics that happened this past November, um, and uh, we're just really super excited about it. So that would be the next thing. Awesome. Yeah, I'm definitely looking forward to that as well. Thank you so much again, Zach. Thank you, guys. Next, in one week's time, we will be discussing, at last and belatedly, Excalibur 55, The Ghost of Braddock Manor. I already did a plug for that one because we were going to cover it today, but it got bumped to next week for scheduling reasons. But basically, it is the one where the team throws a key party and Kurt and Cerise spend seven minutes in heaven. You are not going to want to miss that. It was worth waiting for, I promise. In the meantime, if you liked what you heard, please follow us, like, and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it. Don't forget to check out our fabulous YouTube videos, which we've done for many of our episodes, which you can find via our website or the Box Popcast YouTube channel. As always, if you want to chat with us about Excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest for a future episode, let us know. You can reach out via our our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras thank you andrew and mav for another artistic conversation thank you zach for helping us paint a picture thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for a truly epic theme song play us out i also very much enjoyed this conversation much more than reading the comic and that's the ideal <laughs>